private journey with Jesus is just the beginning. Connecting with others intensifies our light. Together we bring hope to the world. Christ, you, me, Colette. Kia ora, everyone. Good to see you guys today. Uh, yeah, so it's my great privilege to be able to continue on the series that we've been doing for the last little while, a series called Collab, as we go through the chapter, or the book of Philippians, rather, still in chapter one, but we're going through the entire book of Philippians. And uh, so it's my joy to be able to continue that today. Uh, but to begin with, starting off with this question of what world are you living in? Now, um, this probably will come as a shock and a surprise to most of you, but I wasn't actually born here in New Zealand. Um, from another place, my accent gives me away. So obviously I'm American and I've lived quite a bit of time overseas. I've lived in the UK, I've lived in Mexico, then most recently here in New Zealand. And uh, this odd thing happens to me whenever I go back home to the States, is I get back in the States and it's suddenly this weird thing where I have to remember what world I'm living in. And the most common place that this happens to me is as soon as I get behind the wheel of a car. Any of you guys have ever gone over to the States or driven on the other side of the road, it honestly takes me a week at least just to stop going up to the right-hand side of the car to drive. You get over there and every time you're like, yeah, get over to this side. Or, or there's moments of pure abject terror when you're um, driving. Most of the time I feel pretty good because you just follow the flow of the cars. The place where I most forget what world I'm in is the parking lot. Yes, anyone else? I'm not the only one. Someone else has almost died doing this. So it's uh, at the parking lot. It's, there's no lane markings. And so I'll just revert back to the old world and I'll just jump over onto the left side and then have this pure moment of terror as I'm on the inway, on the outway of the parking lot and cars are trying to get in this car behind me and everyone thinks we're going to die. And it's, it's terrifying and I forget what world I'm in. Or it happens when a when I'll often, you know, meeting someone or I'll say, cheers, mate, or, or thanks, mate. And I'll say mate, and to us, that's really common. But in the States, the, the primary connotation of mate is what animals do to make baby animals. So um, <laughs> saying like, hey, mate, is kind of an odd thing to say to someone. Now, if they watch TV, they'll, they'll get it eventually. But that first initial response is a bit like, no, thanks. Um, or probably the most, the, the place where I feel most awkward is at a, going out to eat at restaurants in the States because I have no idea what to do anymore. Like here, I feel like there's a common system. Like it's pretty used to what's happening. But I go to the States and I, I freak out like, okay, so it's done. Where, where do I pay? Do they bring the check to me or do I walk up to the bar? I'm pretty sure once I've gone up to go pay at the bar and their waitress is like, no, you need to pay. And I'm like, I know I'm trying to. Or, um, or there's that awkward moment where they bring the check to you and you're looking at it. And then there's this little thing at the bottom that says tip. And there's this terrifying moment of, what do I do? How much do I have to tip to not be a jerk? But also, I don't want to give them too much money. So like, what, what do I do here? But I don't want them to live in par poverty. So Paula Bennett is wrong. We should not do tipping here in New Zealand. It's confusing. Um, but perhaps you've ever, you've felt this way. It's this feeling of when you, you've lived in two places, or perhaps it's you've lived in one area of New Zealand, and then you go back home and you forget what world you're in. Or a really common one is if you've lived by yourself for a long time, and then you go back and stay with your parents, you have this clash as you forget, you have your own systems the way you do things, you're suddenly back in your parents' home, or you're like, oh, what world am I in? What world am I living in? And it's this, it's this confusing thing that we all embody that Paul 
raises up in the verses we're going to be looking at, which is what world are we living in? What value systems are we following? How do we operate? And so we're going to be looking today at Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 through 30. And uh, just recapping uh, from a few weeks ago, uh, Andrew talked about, you know, Paul was going through, and in this long introductory part of the letter, Paul's been going through his affairs. He's saying, look, it's great to hear from you. I'm always so overjoyed when I think about your community. And then Paul was saying, look, I'm in jail. And he goes through this long deliberation of saying, I'm in jail. I don't know how the trial is going to be. If the trial goes poorly, then I get to go be with Christ, which is good. But if the trial goes well, then I'll stay and be with you, which I'd rather not prefer. I'm in two minds. What do I do? Ah, do I live as Christ? Do I die as gain? What do, what do I do? And it's after that, after this huge introductory section, we get to this passage here. And what happens here is it marks a turning point in Philippians. The first bit has been mostly introduction. And here at verse 27, it actually shifts into the main body of the letter. In fact, it's quite frustrating. The chapter ends at verse 30. But I think the chapter divider people did a really terrible job ending the chapter at verse 30. They probably should have started it here because this is where Paul's new thought begins. And so with this in mind, he's saying, which do I do? Will I stay? Will I go? We come to this verse in 27 where Paul says, well, whether I stay, whether I go, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit striving together as one for the faith in the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. And this will be a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Now, I don't know how you find this, but when I was reading through this, this verse this week, I find it, the way Paul says this, incredibly confusing. Anyone else? He like jumps from thing to thing, eh? and he comes back and he's got weird interjections. And one of the reasons I found out that this verse is often really difficult for us to understand in English is that this whole block right here in Greek is actually just one really long sentence. It's just one kind of run-on sentence that Paul keeps tacking things onto. So when translators have tried to work it into English, they're like, how do we fit all these thoughts in? Because he just keeps running on and on. But the way for us to understand it is that it all basically hinges off, if it's one sentence, it all hinges off this first one that we have up here. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And if you do that, if you conduct yourselves worthy in a manner of the gospel of Christ, then I know you will stand firm in the one faith, whether I hear about you or whether I don't. And I know that you'll stand firm in the face of the opposition and you're working together and conducting your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel will show everyone else, the the oppressors that you're facing, that your way will continue and that their way will end because God has given it not to just, we don't get the privilege of just believing in Jesus, but we get the privilege of suffering with him as well. And so this is what Paul picks up on, but it's really easy for us to miss one key thing in this. And it's this phrase, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy, conduct yourselves. Um, When we hear think that we think just do the right things, do the good things, be a moral person, right? That like, that would be the connotation that comes to our mind. The difficulty is, is that when Paul uses this phrase, it's actually the words he uses are like really political, like really politically charged words. It's like a conduct yourselves, vote as, um, 
engage in politics as. It's almost like live as citizens. It's a political phrase. And so the best way we can really understand it is live as citizens of heaven in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's a very political thing to do. And the reason Paul's doing this is because we talked about this a few weeks ago, but when we remember Philippi, Philippi was this small city that lied on this really important trade route that traveled between Rome. And then you would travel East. And one of the main stops on this road East was through Philippi in Greece. And then it would travel further on East into Turkey and the rest of the empire. And what made Philippi so important was in the midst of this Greek kind of land and all these other Greek smaller townships, Philippi was this little Roman city. In fact, a few years earlier, Octavian had reset up the city and had filled it with a bunch of Roman soldiers and veterans and dignitaries. And so it meant that they were unique in their surroundings. And so for them being Roman was really important. It was what made them powerful. It was what made them safe. It was what made them secure. It was where all of their value and self-worth from because all the other cities, well, these are just Greek cities, but we are Romans. And it meant that there was a sense of pride in their citizenship. And so when Paul says live as citizens of heaven, he's intentionally tapping into this. He's tapping into this worldview to a people who were so proud of their citizenship as it is. And he says, you are proud of being Roman citizens, but instead I call you to live as citizens of heaven. And now for us, we need to understand heaven for most of popular church church culture. uh, Heaven is the good place we go to when we die. It's uh, when we kick the bucket, we get to go off to heaven and everything will be sorted and perfect, right? Like that's a popular idea of heaven, but it's not probably the most biblical idea of heaven. Uh, It's a better way to think about heaven as the place where God rules, a place where God's kingdom is fully realized, where what God says goes. And so the whole theme that you find weaving throughout all of the scriptures is not that heaven is just a place we go to when we die, but it's this idea that heaven is coming to earth. Even the Jewish temple, which marked the place of God's holiness was like a little outpost, a little colony of heaven in the midst of Israel. And so when Paul is talking to the Philippians, he's saying live as citizens of heaven, just as Philippi is a little Roman colony in the midst of all these Greek townships. You as the church are a little colony of heaven in the midst of Philippi. And so Paul's picking up on that and saying, live as citizens of heaven. The question is, what does that mean? What does that entail? What did he have in mind when he was sharing that? Well, he's playing off of these two worlds. Rome and your citizenship there is so important to you, but I'm calling you to something else. And the first theme that we see as Paul, he picks up throughout this letter and it comes up multiple times is this theme and this idea of power. Now within Rome, power was everything. They were the strongest military force in the known world. Their tactics were outstanding and their ability to subjugate and dominate tribes and peoples all over the world was just of renown and power was the way that they did things. In fact, a few years before that, there was a big uprising of slaves within Rome itself. The slave population had grown quite extensive and seeking their freedom and seeking their hope. They rose up and tried to lead a civil war for their own rights and their own freedom. Now, unfortunately it was not successful. 
they were defeated by the Roman military, but rather than just defeating the slaves and putting them back into, into their servant's household, instead they gathered up the remainder of the army, 6,000 people, and in one day crucified 6,000 people along the roadside. It's known as the Appian Way. It was a power move, an act to say that though you may try to fight against us, though you may have hopes of having freedom apart from us, we are the supreme law of the land. It was how Rome had gotten to what it was. And so Philippi had gotten a lot of this culture within it. Now, remember, it's kind of a, a roughly new city. It's been filled with Roman soldiers and new dignitaries. And so what it meant is it was this kind of city of new money, a, a place where there was possibility to move up the social ladder, as it were have a new place of standing within this city. And so what you see is in the city, everyone is jostling for power. Everyone's trying to get up on top. And in fact, because they were Romans, they had more power than the rest of the towns around them. They were allowed to buy and sell land. The surrounding cities were not. They were exempt from land and poll taxes. The surrounding cities were not. And if they had any disputes in the legal system, they were promised a much more fair and just case as opposed to the towns and cities around them. Their whole world was centered around this power that they had because of their citizenship and because their citizenship valued power. It was the spiral where everything was seen as that. And you can see this in Paul's letter to the Philippians, the inklings of this and the church struggling with it. A church that was supposed to live as citizens of heaven instead are finding difficulty with their citizenship to Rome. As you see, even within the church, there are leaders in the church who are jostling for power and who are jostling for position because power is something that we all want. Control is something we all seek to have. And once we get it, it's really hard to let go of it. And what's terrifying is that this system of power didn't just stay at Rome. It's followed through in every single empire ever since. And the lust and the want for power is just as pervasive today as it was back then. Here today, we still love to be in control. When we, when we face difficulties or when we face conflict in a relationship, how much do we try and react out of defense in order to maintain our own standing, in order to maintain our own power, our own little bit of control in that relationship? Or, um, you know, uh, one of the things, because I'm a pastor, I meet with other churches and I, I meet with other pastors and ministry leaders. And one of the things that's often talked about is this idea of um, in the West, the church is in decline. Uh, pretty much among most every single denomination, you're either plateau or there's a decline in membership. And this is the first time this has happened in recent history for us. And so there's a, there's a sense of anxiety and fear. And so with that, I often meet people who, when they talk about the old days, there's a sense of nostalgia for the good things God used to do. You know, those good old days, perhaps it was during the charismatic renewal and we saw God do lots of things amongst us, even here in Tauranga. And we saw God was moving and, and in society, the church was in a really good space. I mean, often the newspapers would come and ask us our opinions on social issues. We got hearings and meetings at parliament where we could talk to politicians about how to run our governments and how to, how to put things together. And we had a great voting base and we could actually engage with power and ability within our context in our society. But nowadays it's not like that. Nowadays we find ourselves on the fringes and it's a natural desire to want to long for the good things God used to do. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But I often wonder when I hear, and I'm a part of these conversations, yep, some of it is longing for what God wants to do, but I often wonder how much of it is 
a longing for the power that we used to have as a church, a longing for that place of status that we used to have as Christians. We were respected as Christians. We were an important centerpiece to our fabric of society and the loss of that. I wonder how much of it is a sadness because we are losing some of the power that we like. But instead, as Paul calls them to live as citizens of heaven, he flips the paradigm and says, Rome operates on a paradigm of power, but in heaven, we we operate off a paradigm of weakness or humility. When he's, he's talking to these church leaders saying, Hey, don't jostle for positions, but act in humility to one another. Paul describes it as this saying, look, be like Christ who being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness, taking the very nature of a servant, taking the very nature of a slave. When Paul says, how did God do his most marvelous, amazing work? How did he spread the gospel? How did he change creation itself? He took the nature of, of a slave, of a servant. And see, Paul is saying is that as citizens of heaven, we operate out of this paradigm because God does not use power to achieve what he wants. Instead, God uses humility and weakness. And through weakness, his plans are made known. He makes a shambles of those who think they are strong because God's power can even work through the weakest of things. And so when we look at that, I wonder how much for us as the church, even though we may look and long for the glory days, we may long for that position of power. How much could we instead embrace some of the marginalization that's happening to us? How much could we embrace saying, yep, we don't hold the place in society that we do anymore. So instead we're going to come alongside everyone else who feels like they've been left out by society. And we're going to be with them. We're going to sit with them. We're going to listen to their stories because we understand we are there too. We don't hold all those positions of power, but boy, do we love the people who've been left behind in that. Can you see how it's a different mode of operating? It's a different way of being the church. It's a different way of achieving the goals we want to achieve in a spirit of weakness and humility, rather than in one of strength in our conflicts, rather than rushing to try and defend ourselves. Perhaps we pause and listen and try to understand first in our relationships. Instead of trying to use people or putting ourselves up into the top place, maybe we come in and just say, how can I serve? How can I help put me in the lowest space? I will wash the dishes. I'll tidy up at the end. And the most marvelous thing is that Paul says, is as we do this, you begin to see that inkling, that heavenly colony being made known here in our midst. The next thing Paul picks up on is this idea of security. Now Rome, because of all of its power, once it had expanded, it entered this era that was known as the Pax Romana, the era of Roman peace. Now I feel like you probably want to do quotation marks on that because there was pretty much always fighting on some barrier. And if you're one of like the Gauls or Israel, you probably wouldn't say it was the Pax Romana wonderfully, but to Rome, there was this idea of peace and security. And so much of their society was structured in order to maintain this, even their religious festivals. So we know about Roman gods, a bit like Jupiter or Pluto or Neptune, and they would do sacrifices and they'd build temples. Even these religious systems were set up in order to maintain security and stability. 
Because the whole world view was that if you keep the gods happy through sacrifices and through gifts and through incense and through prayers, keep the gods happy, then we will not have natural disasters. We won't have plagues. We won't have sicknesses. We will have blessings and we will have military success. And so their whole religious system was a give and take in order to maintain security and stability. And in places like Philippi or places that were a bit further from Rome, a bit further East, they had developed this, I mentioned it before, this idea of this imperial cult where they worshiped Caesar as Lord and savior. Caesar became almost in a sense deified as a God. And now part of the reason they did that is because again, Philippi had all of its safety and security in being tied to Rome. The more Roman they were, the more they were able to be tax free, the more they were able to have their own legal standing, their own running of the ship, the more they got to maintain their security as a city state. And so this imperial cult became a system by which they strengthened that tie with empire. And so at every festival, there would, be, there would be incense and sacrifices offered to Caesar, calling him Lord and Savior, thanking Caesar for the gospel of peace that he has brought. This is all language that they were using. Hail Caesar, bringer of the gospel of peace, our Lord and Savior. Now, can you imagine the difficulty that's faced when a church begins to upset that? See, when a church then decides to not offer incense to the gods, they're risking the wrath of the gods, which means they are risking plague and catastrophe and natural disaster on their fellow countrymen. And when they're saying, yeah, you say Caesar's Lord and savior, but actually some rabbi in Jerusalem who you crucified as a slave and as like a horrible person, he's actually the real Lord and savior of not just Rome, but of the entire known universe. The very cosmos itself is all centered around him. Can you see how it was beginning to upset that security? Can you see how Philippians would be quite upset by someone making those claims because it's upsetting the security and safety that they had. And so within the church, we see a difficulty and a longing to hold on to that in the face of oppositions. It's a lot easier to not rock the boat in the face of difficulty. It's a lot easier to just let it flow, let it go by, not get in the way. How easy for us is it to hold on to our security? Let me ask you a question. When, when was the last time you took a big risk on something God was telling you to do and it put you into a really vulnerable place? When's the last time you took yourself out of the comfort zone and moved into a place of vulnerability? Now I ask that with pure shame and difficulty because I find this one really, really difficult. I find it so tough. It's so challenging. In fact, um, this week I was having a little bit of a pity party for myself. I mean, I don't always do this, but this week I was having like this, <sighs> like I, I, most of you guys know my job is, uh, I do some stuff around here at the church, but my long-term role is to be planting a church out in uh, Papamoa East, out in the Golden Sands community is what I've been brought here to do. And this week, as I was trying to get some things together, I was facing a few difficulties. So some of the people I wanted to get a hold of, I couldn't get a hold of them. It was hitting a bit of a brick wall. And, you know, uh, some of the finances that we we're hoping to get together, we're having a few difficulties as we look ahead. There's a few payments we have to put on the land with numbers bigger than my mind can really process and uh, trying to gather the people and the volunteers. And I was having this moment where I was like, God, this is hard. 
this is, this is really hard. You know, and I had, this, I had this whole pity party for myself. And I'm not going to lie, I kind of enjoyed it. It was really cathartic. But it wasn't a great place to stay in for too long. As I was like, I, locked, I looked through and I thought about everything. I was like, this is really difficult. This is really tough. I could just stay here at BBC, man. Wouldn't it be easy to just fall into the fabric here and not have to worry about doing any of that stuff? Everything here is already taken care of. We already have a building, facilities. How easy would that be? Man, this is really difficult. I'd rather, you know, this is, it would be easier to just stay here. But then something happened. On Thursday night, I had the great privilege of gathering together with some of the people that uh, were looking at being a part of the church plant out there in Golden Sands. And we'll be having these meetings kind of once a month, and this is the first of them. And I was really struck because here I was the day before having this pity party for myself, right? Be like, oh, these things are hard. And I get there, and as we were going through and we were talking together about what the church plant is going to look like, we talked about how the church plant's actually going to be really difficult. You know, it's not going to look like how we think it's going to look like. We've got all these wonderful images like, oh, it's going to be great. Hallelujah, Jesus. You know, like it's not going to be that. There's going to be people there that we find difficult to relate to. There's going to be difficult situations we find hard working through. And we went through this and we talked about it. And for me, I was, it's so easy for me to be like, man, this is going to be really tough. I don't. But what struck me is that in this group of people, while I was having a pity party, I was struck by this community that said, wow, awesome, let's pray. I was struck by a community that was willing to step out of the comfort zone of Bethlehem Baptist and face the difficulty that a church plant will be. Because really for them, I mean, some of them are here in the room. I love you guys. Hi. Um, For so many of you to stay here, everything would be easy. I mean, Bethlehem has everything catered for us. We have amazing facilities. We run really, really good programs. We have great musicians like Darren and the team that can keep things running smoothly. We have organizers, we have websites, we have volunteers, we have tea and coffee. We have so much set up here that if you wanted to be a part of a healthy, vibrant church and be a part of a wonderful community, you could stay here and do that just fine. But I was struck by this group of people that was willing to step out of all of that. And they're willing to say, yep, I know this is going to mean I'm going to have to set up chairs really early. This means I'm going to have to go and work really hard. This means I'm going to have to give financially to something that is bigger than myself. This means it's going to cost me. But they were there anyway. And I was struck as I watched and I listened to their prayers and I heard them gather together. I was struck by what happens when a group gives up a willingness for security and embraces a theme of suffering and a willingness to suffer for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, Paul even spoke about it there. He said, look, don't you understand that it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for him as well. See, Paul knew that as much as we love believing in Christ and we love having hope in Christ and healing in Christ, that is not the only privilege as a church that we are given. Instead, being citizens of heaven means being willing to undergo elements of pain, discomfort, insecurity, vulnerability, and suffering for the sake of the gospel. And what made me so encouraged as we gathered together is I realized with this group of people, Even though none of us are that special, we're all pretty ordinary. None of us have it all figured out. It's when there's a people of God that are willing to step out of the boat, take a risk, go do something that they don't know how it's going to turn out, go to a place where they don't know how it's going to all fit together. When they do that, we move into a place of vulnerability and suffering and difficulty. And in that place, we see God move. 
In that place, we begin to see God pull people together in a way that we could not. In our fear and in our insecurity, we see God bring things together that we never thought possible. Because when we live in a place of suffering, vulnerability, and weakness, rather than a place of security, we trust in God for those things rather than in ourselves. And we as a kingdom, as citizens of heaven, can embody that different way of living. One that does not rest on everything being making sense for us, but a willingness to step out for God and for others. Can you see how Paul is bringing in a different way of being church, a different way of living life? He's contrasting worlds of power and security for places of weakness, humility, and suffering and vulnerability. But in this, Paul says, we find the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God is everything we want or need. See, essentially, when it boils down to it, this world rotated around self. It rotates around me. The power that I can secure, the safety that I can feel, the pleasures I can enjoy, the things that I can do. It's a world that revolves around me and making sure number one gets everything that they need. But Paul says, no, instead as citizens of heaven, the world does not rotate around us. It rotates around Christ. We no longer become the center of our own stories. Instead, our life begins to rotate around a new center point, And that center point is Christ. And we join into a circle, into a rhythm with a community of other people all rotating around this one person. And in that community that embraces weakness and humility and suffering and vulnerability, there the gospel is seen. There heaven is made real. There a colony, a local hotspot of heaven comes to earth and anyone from the world can come and enter into it. It's made up by this main point of Paul. To live is Christ and to die is gain. And so the question that this text asks of us is what world are you living in? When you think about how you make your decisions about how you base your values, about how you're going about your life, what world is it being based upon? Are the values you live being based upon power and security and self? Are you looking just to promote yourself or find a place of security that you don't ever have to worry about anything again? Or is there a willingness to go and be the servant to step down and be humble, a willingness to step out of your comfort zone and do something you don't think you can do so that God can do something in and through you for the sake of the other. Does your, lo- does your life rotate around you or does your life rotate around Christ. This is the call that each of us have to face. But if we live as this, as citizens of heaven, then here in Bethlehem, over in golden sands and all the churches in our city, there will be little colonies of heaven, little hot spots of God's rule and reign where anyone can walk into and see what God wants to do with all of creation. God can, people can look at us and say, wow, God is doing something good. We just have to ask, what world are we living in? Let's pray. 
Jesus, it's really easy um, to get these things mixed up. Lord, I'm, I'm the first to say that it's so easy for me to be seduced by these values of power and security and self. It's so easy to just want to force my way and try and make things happen as I would like them to, to come from a place of dominance or power in order to push my will through. Lord, it's so easy for me to crave security, that safety that we find in making things just right, just so. It's so easy to live our lives this way, but you call us to a different mode of living, a different way of being human that you modeled for us in Jesus Christ. A life of weakness and humility that embraces our limitations, our smallness, so that in our limited small ability, your magnificence is made known. A willingness to step out of the boat, a willingness to face some opposition, to face some pushback, to face some discomfort, to face some difficulty, because we know you are doing good things in and through it. To be, willing to, to be willing to be the ones who will say, God, I will go. Because through broken vessels like us, is hope for the nations. Lord, help us to rotate our lives, not around ourselves, but around you, Jesus. Make us into your family into your church. And may this community be known as citizens of heaven.